One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like duvets, judges, and poppycock. <laughs> poppycock? Now that's extraordinary, which definitely, you know what it means, don't you? Well, nonsense, uh, isn't it? We've actually done one on nonsense. Is that? I think it means uh, soft excrement. Uh, I think that's what it, uh, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, or... Stutter, splutter, and mutter. I think the history of muttering would be would be superb. Putter, so puttering to putter along. Uh, butter and clutter. I think we should definitely do the history of clutter. It's the it's a bit like the history of rubbish that we did. Well, sort of. You don't uh, throw clutter out. It's just stuff. It's kind of stuff exactly. you don't throw out. My um, clutter could be archives, Sam. Yeah, ooh, don't you think? Wild archives, James. Oh, I love I love a wild archive. Mm, you know that. Never know what you're going to find. Never My know shed is full find. of clutter. It's like a wild archive itself, actually. Um, I found uh, this amazing, um, this amazing piece of very beautiful handmade Chinese paper with a with some magnificent Chinese calligraphy on it, uh, just tucked at the back of my back of my shed the other day. I wonder what else is you, there, James. You have no idea how cluttered my study is at the moment. It's just, it's appalling. I can't actually move around in it. And I've I've actually calendarised half an hour today to actually sort it out. Mm-hmm. Because I think a tidy study means a tidy mind. And a tidy mind means a brilliant historian. And I think we need brilliant history uh, today more than ever. However, Sam, (laughs) we digress wonderfully uh, because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, speaking of the history of clutter, that the history of rubbish is in fact all about truth, secret habits, fixed wrestling matches in ancient Egypt, sweets and political discontent, or that the history of snow is in fact all about DNA, bacchanalian excess, the Boston Massacre, cruelty to cats, and tattoos. (laughs) Bit of Scythian warriors in there, I suspect. I think so. It's also about the colour yellow as well. Interesting. Very fascinating stuff. We've done a podcast on that very topic Go and find it as winter approaches, as winter approaches. James, actually, at the end of of our um, episode on laughter, you pointed out that it's nearly Christmas and it's September. But you love Christmas so much. It really, really made me laugh. 
Um, but I, okay. I do feel that Christmas is coming. Do you know what? Do you know what? This weekend, uh, I went to a wonderful uh, Christmassy shop. Have you ever been to Burnerville Nurseries? Yes. This is a plug to Burnerville Nurseries. <laughs> Burnerville Nurseries is a cornucopia of Christmas stuff at this time of year. Their Christmas display is out. They have about a million rooms organised by colour, and they have like literally thousands of Christmas decorations. So I bought this. Can you see this? Uh, hang on. A little. Christmas Robin to go on the tree. Can you see that? Little Christmas Robin. Oh yes, very nice. There we indeed. are. It will sit in my tree and I bought some wrapping paper. So I'm I'm all Christmas out. I, I've got something interesting for you. Do you want to see like a, a really old Christmas Robin from about the nineteen the early nineteen hundreds? Yes, please. This isn't one that you this isn't one that you made out of trash. Hang on, this is this is this is outstanding digression from histories of the unexpected. Hang on, James. But Sam, I think Christmas is Christmas should be all year round. Uh, to be honest, I tend to spend most of the year preparing for Christmas. I can't find it. I think my oh, don't worry. I think my Christmas Robin has, has has disappeared. I know exactly where it used to be. It used to be sitting on a little cup, and it's now gone. Well, I have. And it was my. I have been getting. I've been getting very Christmassy. Look at this. If you can see that, it is a <laughs> Christmas house advent it calendar. Is. It was enormously expensive, um, but I'm going to construct it and maybe give it to my daughters or maybe just keep it for myself. As we speak, it's the 9th of October. I just want to... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's carry on. Um, what, what, wonderful thing and a little teaser of, of all the wonderful stuff. James and I love our Christmas episodes. We've got a few in the past. Anyway, who is this man I'm talking to? Let's just say that the type of history he likes... Well, the subjects are akin to medieval mountain dwellers. And it's his duty since the moment he was born to seek out these people, to find out who they are, how they live and what they think of the world. He is the Sherlock Holmes of the mountains. He's the Edmund Hillary of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire of early modern British history at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. That's a brilliant introduction for me. Thank you. I, I, I feel very touched by that. And and the man not sitting opposite me, uh, well, let's just say he is the man-mountain himself, mm. Atlas, <laughs> holding the weight, the historical weight of the world upon his very um, broad shoulders. Yeah. Uh, it's the truly wonderful, famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. That weight is heavy, James. It bears down on me. I find All the I time. find it oppressive sometimes. <laughs> this is this is believe it or not not about Christmas. Uh, it is the second episode on our history of the mountains, of mountains in general. The first episode was great fun. We talked about all sorts of things, but primarily the difficulty um, associated with being a historian, how you actually understand the lives of mountain dwellers back in the remote past, and how our views of them are very much coloured. Uh, we also mentioned that. Sorry, were you going to go no, on? No. No, we also mentioned their literary associations with mountains, the way in which novels had dealt with mountains. And I think one of the most brilliant uh, examples that I've read uh, in recent years is actually Frankenstein. Uh, and Frankenstein was fascinated with mountains. And we see this in Mary Shelley's 1818 novel, Frankenstein, where her protagonist finds himself in the French Alps. And he's wandering uh, around his his environment in a brilliantly romantic way. I mean, he was, after all, a man of his time. Uh, climbing on the 
Montantvert Alpine Glacier, he found that the experience, and I quote, filled me with a sublime ecstasy that gave wings to the soul and allowed it to soar from the obscure world to light and joy. And suddenly, however, the weather changed and Frankenstein finds himself haunted by this sort of gothic sense of desolation and looming threat. And Mont Blanc is described as having an awful majesty and you get this sense of a lurking presence of a monster here. And I'll just read you this from chapter 10. I spent the following day roaming through the valley. I stood beside the sources to the Arveyron, which take their rise in a glacier with that slow pace is advancing down from the summit of the hills to the barricade valley. The abrupt sides of vast mountains were before me. The icy wall of the glacier overhung me. A few shattered pines were scattered around and the solemn silence of this glorious present chamber of imperial nature was broken only by the brawling waves or the fall of some vast fragment. The thunder sound of the avalanche or the crackling reverberated along the mountains of the accumulated ice which through the silent working of immutable laws was ever and anon rent and torn as if it had been but a plaything in their hands. These sublime and magnificent scenes afforded me the greatest consolation that I was capable of receiving. They elevated me from all littleness of feeling, and although they did not remove my grief, they subdued and tranquillised it. In some slumbers also they diverted my mind from the thoughts over which it had brooded for the last month. I retired to rest at night, my slumbers, as it were, waited on and ministered to by the assemblance of grand shapes which I had contemplated during the day. They congregated round me, the unstained snowy mountain top, the glittering pinnacle, the pine woods and ragged bare ravine, the eagle soaring amidst the clouds. They all gathered round me, and bade me at peace. Now, the trip that Frankenstein makes to the Alps captures the what I think you know we were talking about in the last episode. It's this contradictory nature of mountains that had always influenced human history, but they are simultaneously awe-inspiring and captivating in the enormity of their scale and their natural beauty, but equally they are terrifying, dangerous places. They have boasted the capacity to uplift the soul, to inspire greatness, yet also to heighten one's awareness of one's own significance, which is what you were saying about, you know, thinking about yourself in relation to the mountain, thinking about your, you know, you and your identity and your, your sort of smallness in relation to it. Now, these very fictitious experiences of mountains are very common in history. And I think, as we were saying before, mountains occupy a very special place in the deep history of the world. So there we are, a little bit of Frankenstein for you. That was, I thought that was a beautiful passage. Yeah, really, really good. And it actually raises the idea of something I wanted to talk about, is about the link to what I, I talked to about in the first episode, where we were talking about... Greek mountain resistance fighters who sought 
refuge in the mountains. And I'm quite interested in this idea of mountains being a safe place or a dangerous place. And there are different ways you can look at this. Um, dangerous one, I found... Uh, I've recently signed up to the New York Times, James. This is not a uh, a plug. It kind of is a little bit of a plug. So we've done Burnville Nurseries <laughs> in the New York Times. <laughs> They're yes. the only podcast in <laughs> the history of the world to join those two things together. If you're in Exeter, though, do go and check out <laughs> Burnerville Nurseries. It, I'm so geeked out by and it. And if you're at home by the computer, do please check out the New York Times from the 10th of March, 1976. <laughs> uh, you were you were a little toddler, weren't you, James? By then, uh, I'd have been uh, I'd have been four, uh, three or four. I was minus one, minus one. Oh, youngs. Um, I, I love looking at historic newspapers. And I'm always particularly interested in the language they use. Uh, I'm just going to read this out to you. Trento, Italy, March the 9th. A cable car packed with skiers plunged 200 feet to the ground in this northern Italian city today. And the police reported that 42 people had been killed. They said that there was only one survivor, a seriously injured woman. The police said most of the victims were West Germans. The Italian news agency ANSA said 38 of the 41 passengers were part of a large group of skiers from Hamburg... The other passengers and the car's two crewmen were Italians. The accident took place in Cavalese, a resort in the Fiemme Valley in the Dolomites, about 45 miles south of the Austrian border and 20 miles northeast of here. The passengers were returning in early evening from the slopes of a mountain called Alp Xermis. Witnesses at the cableway's lowest station said a cable came loose and the car began to swing and then fell when the cable broke. When the cable car struck the ground, a heavy metal bar that had connected it to the cable smashed through the car's roof, the witnesses said. The cable car was only 600 feet from the terminal station when it fell, the police said. Rescue workers pulled 38 bodies from the wreckage. The other victims were hurled from the cable car when it crashed into the field. The cableway, which was built eight years ago, is roughly three miles long and rises from Cavalese, a winter and summer resort at an altitude of 3,275 feet. Among those who saw the red cable car crash was Frank Ascarian, who works in a bar in the station at the Cavalese end. I suddenly saw customers rush to the window, she said. I looked up and saw the cableway loosening, the car swayed and crashed, and the huge bar on its roof smashed down on top with an awful noise. The cafe manager, Roberto D'Agostino, said, I heard a huge bang and thought the cooking gas had exploded. The accident was the worst alpine disaster in several years. In 1972, a cable car crashed at Brigg in Switzerland, taking the lives of 13 people. In 1961, a French jet fighter flying low in the Alpine area severed the cable of a route up Mont Blanc. Three cars crashed and six people died. There were two cars on the cable system, authorities said. The other car carrying only its operator was going up and had neared the top of the run when it was halted by an automatic brake. The operator got to the ground safely on an emergency ladder. A spokesman for the Cableways Management said the system was inspected by safety officials last November. So there you are. It sounds remarkably modern, even though it's almost a quarter of a century old, more than that, more than half a century old, um, which I think is fascinating. So one aspect of it is it actually it, it sits very well, I think, in, in what would be a modern um, Internet news piece. Um, fascinating there. But obviously the point is that there is a history of terrible disasters in mountains from climbers going missing, uh, skiers regularly hurting themselves. 
whatever it might be. Um, and a, a huge and fascinating history in its own right. So mountains, on the one hand, are dangerous places. But there is another aspect to mountains being safe, which, which links with the Greek resistance fighters. And um, I was going to take you to the, the atomic bombings of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 6th of August 1945, they dropped um, a uranium-235 atom bomb on Hiroshima. And we wrote about this in our book on World War II um, in the chapter on deafness. Fascinating, because one of the uh, witnesses uh, was uh, Meiko Higashi, and, and she was deaf, born in Nagasaki, unable to hear. And she is one of the very few survivors who were actually so close to the bomb exploding. And if you go and, and look at her accounts, they're absolutely fascinating. She talks about an orange-coloured ball of fire surrounded by whirlpools of moving white smoke and how the clouds become long and narrow, spread out like wings, flashes of red light, snorting out through cracks in the clouds. Um, she says she was so frightened that her body shook uncontrollably and her skin was dripping off her chest like melted wax. Um, very shocking stuff indeed. Now, the interesting thing here is that they, the Japanese have built air raid shelters in the nearby mountains. And so throughout the Second World War, if you think of, of uh, the contrast here, if you think of London, people using air raid shelters in the tube system, they're hiding under bridges. In Nagasaki, they were going to the mountains for safety. And all the survivors flee to the mountains. There's a, 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 an exodus of those who have survived who go and live in the mountains. And then they all start suffering from these appalling um appalling effects of the bomb headaches diarrhea there's a smell there are maggots in their burns and then they they once it, they realize they survive they're okay they then walk further into the mountains and mako then her mother dies but she stays in the mountains and she's brought up in the mountains um she's forced to work in the fields child labor slavery she harvests potatoes she's ridiculed she's beaten and i think it's interesting here you You've got this appalling behaviour to her and also to other survivors. And I think that might be as well to do with this lack of ability of the state to keep an eye on what's going so far up in the mountains. Um, and the suggestion that she would not be doing these activities, she would not be treated as bad as she was treated as an isolated, um, as a deaf girl had she been in the middle of the city. But the security surrounding her, the, provided by society, the state, her family is gone up in the mountains and she suffers terrible, terrible abuse. So there's a really interesting um, contrast I hear, here, I think, between safety and danger in the mountains. Certainly for Mako, it's a bit of both. So they go to the mountains for the safety in case there's another bomb. But at the same time, she suddenly finds herself in acute danger because of the lack of the visibility and the supports given to her in cities by her family and by the state. Mm. What do you think of that, James? I love it, Sam. Mm. I love it. Um, I, I want to return to this idea about experience in the mountains. Um, and we looked at, in the first episode, we looked at the barrier between mountain people, mountain dwellers, and between those and the towns. And so often those living in mountains are seen as rustically simple. They wear funny different costumes, rural costumes, they have local dialects, they're characterised by travellers and writers as, you know, basically sentimental caricatures. 
Um, whereas those who come down from the mountains to the plains for work um, tend to enter areas where there are records, they transgress laws, they end up in courts. And so in they end up being seen as criminals. And in neither case is the depiction of people in the mountains that satisfactory. Um, so I think one of the things that comes across here is the trials and tribulations of mountain and mountain life, um, which do survive in certain cases. And there are they do make wonderful historical sources. And there are two remarkable accounts uh, from the 19th, turn of the 19th century uh, in the Rocky Mountains in the United States uh, that I came across when I was writing my book, first big book on letter writing in the Tudor period. And I wanted to get a sense of of women writers across across the centuries. And so I chanced upon these in a secondhand bookshop, um, one of which is by the indefatigable 19th century explorer and writer Isabella Bird, uh, who lived in the sort of second half of the 19th century. So she was born in 1831, died in 1904. So witnessed the um, the turn of the century. Um, and her, she published a book called A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains, which was first published in 1879. And it's a travelogue of her journeys there. The other person I'm going to talk a little bit about is another writer. Uh, slightly later uh, is a woman called Eleanor Pruitt-Stewart. So Eleanor Pruitt-Stewart, who lived between 1876 and 1933. So it's about 50 years or so later, 40, 50 years or so later. And she published something called Letters of a Woman Homesteader, uh, which was printed in 1914, which I downloaded on Audible uh, the other night. There's a very good version of it, only for two ninety nine. Um, absolutely brilliant. So I've been falling asleep listening to that <laughs> over the last week or so. Um, and published in 1914, it recounts in a series of letters the period of her life that she spent living on a homestead in Burnt Fork, Wyoming. But to start with Isabella Lucy Bird. Um, her married name was Bishop. Um, she was a 19th century British explorer, writer, naturalist, photographer. Um, she was elected a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, was in fact the first woman to do so. And Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. She travels all over the place. Um, places in Australia, Hawaii. Um, and she moves to the United States and lives in Colorado in the uh, Rocky Mountains. Um, and she writes a series of letters to her sister, which are first presented in a sort of serial form in a magazine called The Leisure Hour, uh, and then get collected together in, in her book. And what she gives is a sense of what it is like to live in the mountains. Uh, and she describes in one of the letters a journey near Long's Peak in Colorado, and she wrote of the mountains of the land, which is very far off, are very near now. But the near is more glorious than the far and reality than dreamland. And struck by mountain fever, she comes across a very trim looking log cabin and is regaled by a fellow countryman, Welshman Griffith Evans, who in the evening light thought that she was Mountain Jim dressed up as a woman. So these are very anecdotal uh, these letters that she's that she's writing. Uh, there's one uh, which she's writing uh, in September from a nameless region in the Rocky Mountains. The scenery up here is glorious, combining sublimity with beauty. And in the elastic air, fatigue has dropped off from me. This is no region for tourists and women only for a few elk and bear hunters at times, and its unprofaned freshness gives me new life. I cannot by any words give you an idea of scenery so different from any that you or I have ever seen. This is an upland valley of grass and flowers, of glades and sloping lawns, and cherry-fringed beds of dry streams and clumps of pines artistically placed, and mountainsides densely pine-clad, the pines breaking into fringes as they come down upon the park, and the mountains breaking into pinnacles of bold grey rock as they pierce the blue of the sky, a single dell of bright green grass on which dwarf clumps of the scarlet poison oak look like beds of geraniums, slopes towards the west as if it must lead to the river which we seek. Deep, vast canyons, all trending westwards, lie in purple gloom, pine-clad ranges rising into the blasted top of Storm Peak, all run westwards too, and all the beauty and glory are but the frame out of which rises heaven-piercing, pure in its pearly lustre, as glorious a mountain as the sun tinges red in either hemisphere, the splintered, pinnacled, lonely, ghastly, imposing, double-peaked summit of Long's Peak, the Mont Blanc of North Colorado. This is a view to which nothing needs to be added. 
I mean, I think it's an absolutely beautiful piece of travel writing. And I think in the 19th century, when women are trying to establish themselves as professional writers, I think travel writing is one of those dominant genres that women could very comfortably, rather like the novel, women could very comfortably take up. And I think, you know, and really hone a craft of writing. And the fact that the letter is being used as a form here in order to convey letter writing, I think is a tradition that we see going back into at least the, the 17th century. Equally wonderful are the letters of Eleanor Pruitt Stewart, uh, who was a homesteader in Wyoming uh, and a memoirist. Uh, and between 1909 and 1914, she wrote a series of letters, again describing her life in, in Denver, Colorado, in a, a book called Letters of a Woman Homesteader, which actually formed a, a movie called Heartland uh, that came out in the, the late 70s, which I haven't seen, uh, but which I'm, going, I'm, now going to, I'm now going to watch. Maybe I shall pop it on my Christmas list. And she writes in December 1912 to a friend, Mrs Comey, and she describes the mountain life as she actually experienced it. It is true, I want a great many things I haven't got, but I don't want them enough to be discontented and not enjoy the many blessings that are mine. I have my home among the blue mountains, my healthy, well-formed children, my clean, honest husband, my kind, gentle milk cows, my garden, which I make myself. I have loads and loads of flowers, which I tend myself. There are lots of chickens, turkeys and pigs, which are my own special care. I have some slow old horses and an old wagon. I can load up the kiddies and go where I please any time. I think one of the what's striking about both of these passages that we've read is that we have two women who are living in a similar area in Colorado, and it is a fairly romantic, idyllic sense of the mountains that you get. It's almost a sort of homespun, you know, American existence that you're having here presented in a very a very um rose-tinted sense. There's nothing in those of the it's the beauty and majesty and natural wonder of the mountains here. It's the sort of it's the homeliness, the freedom of everything being almost perfect uh in the in the sort of among the blue mountains here. We've got nothing of the the danger that you were talking about, Sam, in, in your in what you were saying before, the danger of the mountains, the fact that they are forbidding places as well. That actually, you know, life is not all sweetness and light there. That actually it's pretty difficult to eke out an existence in in the mountains when you're having to sort of you know, when you're having to work with your hands to pull out, you know, a living from the soil up there. Um, but nonetheless, I think as a as a literary tradition, historical literary tradition uh, of female writers, I think I think I think some really beautiful prose there. Yeah, absolutely wonderful and wonderfully read. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely was, James. Um, the point about life being difficult in the mountains and also the point I'd made about the danger of it really does um, remind me of the time I spent in the mountains of Tajikistan when I made my Silk Road documentary for the BBC, which is currently being broadcast all over the world. Again, actually, I had some people get in touch from Australia where it's uh, on, on, a, on a channel out there. It's lovely to hear people getting in touch and sharing their experiences 
of traveling throughout China, Central Asia and Europe. One of the most profound experiences I had was right at the beginning when I went to Tajikistan. Um, if you don't know where Tajikistan is, just you, you just need to know that it's landlocked and it's in Central Asia. Um, it's bordered to the uh, south, obviously, by Afghanistan. Uh, you've got Uzbekistan to the west, Kyrgyzstan to the north, and then China directly to the east. Uh, it's a fascinating place uh, because it has its own deep history. And then... Um, a really interesting modern history when it became it was conquered by the Russian Empire later the Soviet Union, and then it broke apart when the Soviet Union broke apart. Um, it, it became an independent sovereign nation of its own right in in the nineteen nineties, and I was very lucky to go there to the Zarafshan Mountains of Tajikistan to see a culture that was clinging on for dear life in the modern world because living in a valley of the Zarafshan Mountains were the Yagnobi. They live in the Yagnob Valley and they were the descendants of the Sogdians, once a very, very powerful kingdom in Central Asia. For more than a millennium, from about the 6th century BC to the 11th century AD, above all, they were traders um, and they had an exceptionally luxurious and fascinating culture. But gradually over time, it has disappeared. Um, the culture became less significant. They hid in the mountains in the 10th century AD as the society began to fragment under the pressures of Islam as Islam spread from the West. And what you have here is the Sogdians living in the mountains. It's a place of refuge from the invasive um, Arab caliphate. And then the same problem happened uh, when the Soviets invaded now, what's fascinating is that their language is a direct descendant of Sogdian and children are still taught the Yagnobi language in makeshift classrooms. I actually sat in on, on one of their lessons. It was, it was uh, a really quite a profound experience, especially listening to them to speak their Yagnobi language. It's a language which would have been spoken during Alexander the Great's time, James. That's how ancient this is. Uh, unfortunately, though, it's dying because the mountain range itself, they're not just their language is dying, the entire culture is dying because the, the valleys essentially become a prison and it doesn't have the impetus of new bloods, new energy that is required to keep a language and a culture alive. So there you are. I just wanted to sort of, you know, raise that, that the sort of the spectre, that the danger of that, of living in valleys and how being... Um, unconnected with the outside world can help things survive so yes the Yagnomi survived because they hid away but at the same time it's dangerous and it's a threat to their culture as fewer and fewer people actually have memories of their own history as much as anything else let alone their language brilliant brilliant i think what just to end i think just a very brief thing is an observation is that what we've been talking about throughout these two episodes is the way in which mountains and are very rugged outdoor conditions they're almost on the frontier of civilization which requires a particular kind of human grit or tenacity or fortitude in order to survive and live in those places but also the two accounts that i gave earlier on the two female letter writers show that mountains are sites of travel and exploration as well and I think that connects us to actually societies being able to take control 
over mountains. So while those two women that I talked about earlier on were able to traverse the restrictive gender norms of their age in order to travel and go into the mountains and to write, the question of living in the mountains also takes us to Roosevelt's New Deal and the pump-priming economics of Keynes that we see that sought to kick-start the American economy in the great economic slump that follows the Wall Street crash of 1929. And a central plank of this is all the public works initiatives and the funding that was put into public works programmes. And in particular, I'm thinking about the Civilian Conservation Corps, which is a public work relief programme that created all sorts of manual labour jobs for young unmarried men and led to the conservation and development of vast swathes of natural resources across the United States from bridge building, road building, flood control, and importantly for this, the forestry work. And in particular, this is when you get the Appalachian Trail um, uh, created. Any of you read uh, the the brilliant Bill Bryson book, uh, Walk in the Woods, where he doesn't actually manage to do the Appalachian Trail uh, in its entirety. Um, but it's it's about walking that Appalachian Trail that was built during this period that connects the the that whole sort of um, east coast of America, that sort of uh, the Appalachian Mountains that run right down from the sort of middle of America all the way up uh, the, the eastern coast. And there are a mass of sources that survive from this period um, that we see um, in the, the National Park Service uh, has a photo gallery uh, of this from the Civilian Conservation Corps. If you have a look, there are all kinds of photographic images of men working in the mountains, um, sort of doing, um, planting trees, building uh, sort of paths and walkways and construction. And there's also a number of diaries uh, that survived that I've got here. Uh, in front of me from the Civilian uh, Conservation Corps Legacy, which is a charity that's set up to pass the legacy of the CCC on to future generations. And there's a lovely little diary of a man called Andrew Murdoch, who enrolled in the CCC in New Jersey. And the diary, he's got three little spiral-bound notebooks about three and a half inches by five and a half inches, which contain a, a daily record of his activities. Um, when he, uh, tell of his experience departing Fort Dix in New Jersey and then returning back to New Jersey uh, in March uh, 1936. And I'm just going to read you a couple of little extracts. And they're tiny little spiral bound notebooks with green covers on them. They cost him five cents. Uh, Lyrite notes, and this is little journal, um, journal number three, uh, a dated December the 28th, uh, Saturday in uh, 1935. Work today, um, uh, um, the, his handwriting is actually quite difficult to, is actually quite difficult to read. Um, uh, work today, after breakfast, went back to bed till noontime, wrote some letters after lunch and did some reading. Uh, today worked up in the mountains um, and then 
what's interesting is there are a number of days where he uh, was confined to quarters. Um, so he's obviously ill at this point and he describes himself being sick. Pulled into camp about 3pm, took an awful uh, call down from the CO for us to start work soon. Um, and so he goes on in this sort of scratchy writing and you have a very sort of good record of his daily life working in the CCC, helping to build America's great outdoors. There are whole pages where he's just, where he's just written sick uh, and he's got his... As, he describes he's got bronchial pneumonia, so presumably the conditions that he's working in. So for two, three, four, five, six, seven days, eight, and then he's confined to quarters uh, for what looks like about a week after that, and then he then he gets going, um, gets back and is is taken back into camp and up in, into work after that. But it's a wonderful sort of insight into the sort of the the human interaction with the mountains there. And it brings something like the New Deal and the Public Works Programme absolutely to the forefront of human uh, human life uh, and and endeavour. Wonderful. Um, so there we are, Sam. On, uh, mountains are all about the New Deal. I'm going to abandon my work and just become a mountain historian. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should. I'm quite inspired. Yeah, me too. Uh, the lofty heights of history. Yeah, yeah nice. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that. We, I think you could probably tell that we loved doing it too. Please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell, and the pod itself is at Unexpected Pod. Should you wish uh, to go uh, and climb a mountain, uh, I suggest you go to the Brecon Beacons uh, in Wales as a little starter. Where would you suggest, Sam? Um, uh, I would suggest the uh, Austria. I'd love Austria. I'd go to Austria. Not yet now, though, because um, there was a terrible outbreak of coronavirus in Ischgl, the ski resort there. <laughs> I'd really, I'd, I'd avoid that. Um, That's no good. And well, the Rocky Mountains, Rocky Mountains, if you're living yes. in the US, are, are incredible. Yeah, and if you... I love Colorado. If you've got time and money, go to Fujian province in China. Amazing place. Um, you would obviously need a book to read whilst you were there, wouldn't you, James? And you might I think go you to historiesoftheunexpected.com and have a look at our books. And you could buy one through our website and we will even sign it for you. I will even do some fancy, fancy handwriting in your name if you want to buy one from us for Christmas or for your mountainous holidays. Yes, and we have a big book, uh, Histories of the Unexpected, How Everything Has a History. And we have books on Tudors... Uh, Romans, Vikings and World War II whatever floats your historical boat <laughs> and what fun that was um, if you'd like to support us also patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected we really appreciate any financial support you can give the podcast which is not cheap to produce and it takes us a lot of time and energy to do but we love it we want to carry on so please help us out um, and that's it guys I really uh, hope you enjoyed listening to that and we'll be in touch soon bye bye guys Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.